welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending December 3rd, 2022. This week, Warner Brothers Discovery tries to sell out again. Will anyone buy? I'm Kim Hollis, currently locking my new D&D tomes in my even newer biometric safe. Christmas always starts there early where we are. That's right. With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer conducting the hype train for Cocaine Bear. (laughs) That's probably going to be the first movie I see in theaters in a very, very long time. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, we've been on the Cocaine Bear bandwagon for two or three years now. That's a Southern thing. You can't have that. I laughed really hard at the start of the trailer when it said that it happened in what Knoxville. Knoxville. I was like, wait a minute. It is inspired by a true story that did, in fact, have at least part of its story happen here. There is a part of Kentucky that is less than two hours from us that basically has a shrine to the cocaine bear. No joke. (laughs) There is. It's got a store and everything. Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and 98% finished with his Christmas shopping. Due to continuing complaints from people who received gifts from me, I actually slowballed it this year. So, you know, I waited until December. You're welcome, people. Yep. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burrell, who probably should get started with his Christmas shopping. My kids are impossible to shop for. I mean, <laughs> seriously, Pokemon cards? You're 17. <laughs> In our Warner Brothers Discovery Death Watch this week, Channing Dungey, head of Warner Brothers TV, had a lot to say. She expressed the obvious, that there was a lot of interest in a Harry Potter series, but also implied that the studio was working on a deal to bring animated DC-branded content to Amazon. That's right, folks. Warner Brothers Discovery has decided that consolidation is for chumps. They're going to reset everything we've been saying they should do for a long time because it took this long for them to actually reach that point. And now that they have, they're going to blow it up again. They're making more licensing nightmares. They're supposed to be making less. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. They really are. If they were to bring those deleted Cartoon Network shows to Amazon, that'd be great. I bet that would bring some diehard subscribers to Prime Video. But animated DC shows like Teen Titans and Harley Quinn have been a cornerstone of HBO Max. And since the deal hasn't been finalized yet, it's unclear if it would be new shows or a mix of reruns and returning shows, nor is it clear if it would be exclusive rights. I've said it before. It's fine if you license your content out to someone else for some period of time, but your in-house streaming services should be where we can always find your shows. Yeah, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that this is not going to be for existing content. I'm only speculating. I want to stress that. But the shows we discussed that were like close to airing on HBO Max that suddenly got, you know, ripped into shreds. I suspect these are the licenses we're talking about where now they've said, all right, we can't do this. What we can do is we can find someone like with deep pockets like, I don't know. Amazon to actually exhibit this stuff or buy the rights to create new stories with these licenses. In a way, it is similar to what we watched with, let's use a kind of arcane example, Pennyworth, which aired on something nobody even knows called Epics. But now you'll find all the episodes on HBO Max, which is my way of saying I agree with Raul's central point here. And I think that somebody as 
cheap and poor as David Zaslav is looking at it the same way. You want someone else footing the bill while you actually control the continued long-term rights, which means these shows will begin on Amazon, similar to the deal they had with the CW. However, at a certain point, they will return to HBO Max or they'll share the license right from the beginning. This is probably going to be the future for the streaming services that do not have the financial wherewithal of Amazon, Netflix, and Disney. Do I have that bright role or where do you disagree with me? No, I think you're right. But I'm going to bring up, just to put a point on this, I'm going to bring up a less arcane example. And that's going to be back when Disney wasn't yet ready to launch their streaming service. So they licensed out a number of characters to Netflix, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, The Punisher. And then... When Disney launched their streaming service, they wanted to bring these characters and those shows back home. I'm going to ask you to dig into your memory here. Do you remember how much it cost Disney to bring those shows back home? I mean, I do. It was slightly over $1 billion. Yes. That's what Warner Brothers Discovery is setting themselves up for. Yeah, but see, they're thinking of it a different way than you. These are not the people who believe they're going to be running Warner Brothers Discovery in three years. No matter what they say, they know they have set themselves up to be acquired by somebody else later. So that is a five years down the road person's problem, not their problem. Their problem right now is to get as lean and clean on the balance sheets as they possibly can. And they don't care about licensing nightmares. It is absolutely maddening. And I would imagine that if you ask them privately, Reed Hastings and Bob Iger would just start giggling uncontrollably as they watch somebody who's bad at this just continue to flail. And Warner Brothers Discovery is still in legal hot water. The Ohio Attorney General has asked to be appointed lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit alleging WBD deliberately misled investors during the merger. Oh, yeah. This is my shocked face. Everything we've said about Warner Brothers Discovery suggests that they're just trying to cook the books long enough for them, like David said, to be bought by somebody else. And now they're being called out on it. There's a class action lawsuit all about just how strong their financials were during the merger. Pension plans, like one of the state-funded pension plans in Ohio, has taken a big hit because of this nonsense, and now they're getting sued. I don't expect much to come from this, but I also think it's proof positive that everybody knows it's an open secret. They lied about all this so that they could push through a merger that probably with the benefit of hindsight. You know what we were saying at the time, so it's not even the benefit of hindsight. We knew was a bad deal and was shady and was going to have negative consequences. I don't want to speak for anyone else here. I do believe the consequences we witnessed were actually somehow below our worst case scenario because so many people have lost their jobs. And the one thing we couldn't have anticipated, content has vanished from existence. Will there be legal ramifications from that? Honestly, probably not, because that's not really the way society works. In our rapid fire this week, Bloomberg is reporting that Amazon plans to invest a billion dollars a year in movies for theatrical distribution with plans to release up to 12 films to cinemas annually. Your move, Netflix. (laughs) 
Reed Hastings just said that they're not looking at doing more theatrical distribution. But I think maybe they might want to reconsider that after the success and also blowback from having put the Knives Out sequel Glass Onion out in theaters. It seems to have done pretty well and people are demanding that they leave it in theaters longer. Yeah, it was only there for a week. It's gone. You'll have to wait for basically Christmas for it to show up on Netflix and people are kind of annoyed about that. I mean, I'm one of them. We had a long talk about going to see Glass Onion in the theaters. And, you know, it was a time Thanksgiving week that is crazy busy for everyone. We didn't make it. And now we have to wait, you know, three more weeks because we couldn't see it that short time. It is annoying for all involved. There's a bigger point here, though. And I think this is a philosophical thing where Netflix knows it doesn't need movie theaters. That it's never been its business model. And Reed Hastings has a philosophical stubbornness on this point. Whereas Amazon is looking around and going, movie theaters are barren wastelands right now. It might be worth a small investment to see if we could find two or three films that turn us enough profit to justify this. Because as we have discussed all along, the key to every film and television show produced is to reach the break-even point as quickly as possible. And as soon as you do that, every subscription you get, everything that happens after that is pure profit. So it, it doesn't hurt anything to try this. They don't need to try it. And that's kind of where we're at with this, where theatrical exhibitors remain delusional about their status in this. And so we'll see whether or not they work more with Amazon than they did with Netflix, because the part of the story nobody mentions with Glass Onion is Netflix was making at most 40% of the tickets sold in revenue. If Disney released a film, it'd be 90%. Exhibitors were only willing to do this with Netflix if it was an incredibly beneficial deal to them. And that is not the way the balance of power is right now. I suspect Netflix is waiting for theatrical exhibitors to recognize they do not have the power in these negotiations. This was a one-time proof of concept thing. And Amazon liked it enough that they're going to try it too. Well, pragmatically, the Amazon news shouldn't be shocking given that Amazon owns a movie studio now, MGM, I wonder, in fact, how much MGM used to spend on theatrical movies annually in the past. Is a billion dollars actually a cut compared to how much MGM was spending annually on theatrical distribution? I don't think it's a coincidence then that Amazon also announced this week that Tyler Perry has signed a deal for four movies with them. Tyler Perry's been at Netflix most recently, and while there was no specific mention about Tyler Perry's new Amazon deal bringing his movies to theatrical, We can do the math here and figure out that this might be why Tyler Perry jumped to Amazon. It's a good point. I think that there is a lot of tea to that. You would want somebody who has a proven theatrical box office draw, and that definitely is Tyler Perry, who also is remarkable. I mean, legitimately one of the best in the world at bringing in a a film on budget for much, much less than what the title will actually earn in theaters. Then we've got a number of stories that are reaching their culmination. Legendary Entertainment has finalized their break with Warner Brothers as they formalized a new deal with Sony. Legendary is still upset with Warner Brothers day and date distribution pattern put in place by Jason Kyler at the height of the pandemic. And I'd say that David Zaslav just didn't have the wherewithal to smooth things over once he took over the studio. The problem for Legendary is that their two biggest properties, the Godzilla King Kong, 
Kong monster franchise and the Dune franchise are going to stay at Warner Brothers. Legendary already took their ball and went home in 2014 before reuniting with Warner Brothers in 2018. They act like they have a lot more pull than they've actually got. Sony's already behaving like Amazon's own in-house studio and a number of Sony projects have ended up direct to streaming on Amazon over the last couple of years. Legendary can't and won't be able to change the tide of history. Congratulations, Sony. You just signed a deal with Legendary where you don't get Godzilla or King Kong, you don't get Dune, but you do get the Reanimator reboot. Boy, I bet there was a powerful negotiation <laughs> for that. Seriously, there's a Reanimator reboot? There is, and that is the pride and joy of Legendary once you get past the Godzilla franchise and the Dune franchise. So <laughs> this is one of the most ridiculous non-stories in recent memory. I don't know. I was pretty excited to find that reanimator uh, action figure the other day. All they need to do is find 10 million more people like you. <laughs> AMC Networks has admitted that streaming subscriptions aren't making up for the loss of linear cable revenue and has announced large-scale layoffs. It's more bad news in a season of bad news, but this isn't the fault of AMC Networks. People are cutting the cord, and when that happens, operators of cable channels who make money from cable subscriptions get less money. They need to make up for that loss of revenue somehow. One option, the most obvious one, is to launch a streaming service and try to regain some of those subscribers. It's got a lot of potential upside as you don't have to deal with the cable companies as the middleman and you therefore get 100% of those subscription dollars. But it's becoming increasingly obvious that as people cut the cord, they're not necessarily subscribing to streaming. And if that doesn't happen, studios, especially those that focus exclusively on episodic television content and not theatrical, are screwed. AMC Networks was once on top of the world with a smart and appealing streaming strategy. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if they were up for sale within the next six months. I was using an analogy before we started the podcast, and I'm going to just say it here because it's true. There is a point when you fall out of a plane that as the ground approaches, the gravity takes hold and you start declining at a rapider rate. That is exactly what is happening with linear television. We have known for the body of really 15 years. I mean, you could say 10 if you want, but really 15 years that this wasn't going to last because we could see the writing on the wall as soon as Netflix and Hulu became a thing. And it's one conversation point for it to be theoretical and then it's an entirely different one when it starts showing up on the balance sheets and that's where we're at now where people were like okay we think we can head this off if we do this and this but they were late to react and if you go back to the earliest podcast here one of the things we've said repeatedly bob Iger deserves all the credit in the world and reed hastings gives it to him he was in charge of the most powerful linear television brand on the planet and he still started planning espn plus and disney plus and he went out of his way to acquire all control of Hulu because he realized it wasn't going to last forever with his linear television thing. That is very hard to do. Now, what we're watching now is the death spiral of all these places that followed Disney's lead too late and are now realizing that I don't want to say there's no hope, but it is a really, really challenging business precarious position they're in. 
there's a question of what the alternative may have been. Did AMC networks need to launch their own streaming service as linear declined? And we know that linear is declining and it's going to continue to decline. They could have just continued to ride that one out until the end without launching their own streaming service. Launching a streaming service costs money, billions of dollars that you need to spend. You can look at Disney's balance sheet and realize, oh, that's why Disney's in trouble. Did AMC networks need to launch their streaming service? If they didn't, we have examples of what happens if you don't or if you wait too long. One example is the CW. The CW didn't have its own content and didn't launch a streaming service or start producing their own original content. And now basically there has been network that is going to be running reruns from here on in. The other example is the regional sports networks from Sinclair, the Bally Sports Networks. That one did eventually launch a streaming service, but arguably launched it too late. And now essentially the company is in so much trouble that they're trying to find somebody to buy them and take over the whole operation. So AMC networks had no choice but to launch their own streaming service or sell themselves. They chose to launch a streaming service, but it's going to impact that bottom line until you can hit that equilibrium between declining linear subscribers and new and increasing streaming subscribers. And unfortunately, they're just not at that equilibrium right now. And so they're having to do budget cuts. In other words, folks, the sky really is falling. Sorry. And lastly, we can't avoid the Disney conversation as Bob Iger warned of what we already knew. Restructuring the company and paying off obligations was going to result in big write-downs for the company. Iger's got his get-out-of-jail-free card and he's going to use it. He's got a very small window in which he can announce losses of billions of dollars point to his predecessor, say, whoopsie, and folks are just going to give him a pass. He's doing that. He's doing that as quickly as he can because people are going to expect him to turn around these losses sooner rather than later. So the earlier he announces big, big write-downs, the sooner he can move on past this and towards more profitable times. Yeah, and I think some of what's being said here is overstated anyway. First of all, Iger is about to win the battle that matters the most. The uh, Reedy Creek Improvement District is, even if it's technically dissolved, it's going to be done in a way where Disney is out absolutely nothing. And that is the most important thing for them as they keep up their, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue stream in Orlando without any legitimate government oversight. We need to focus on that part, even though we generally, you know, only talk about streaming because it already shows people are going to run for president in 2024 terrified of Bob Iger. That's how good he is. Reed Hastings is going, wow, I hate that he's back at Disney. I would have voted for him as president. I would have happily given a lot of money to help his campaign if he wanted to run for president because the guy who runs Netflix respects the guy who runs Disney that much. What we're watching here is actually history repeating itself because one of the things Iger hated during his early days at Disney was what he called the quants were in charge. Disney had a division that was basically let's just call them the deciders, the ones who had claimed enough power where they made all of the ultimate decisions on the important things. And Iger hated that business model. So one of the things he did was he empowered the creatives over time to ensure it would never happen again. And then he named Chappick CEO. And I swear to God, one of the first things Chappick did was immediately reinstitute something eerily similar to the structure Iger hated. He ranted about it. He went to the board about it. He complained about it. And they were very emphatic about the fact, if you're really leaving, it's Chappick's call. We have to let him do this. Now he's back and he has already reset everything 
And he legitimately did it within his first 24 hours back at the company, which tells you how strongly he feels that centralized decision-making is bad and that Disney needs its creative people to be in charge of its creative content and its creative marketing spend. And let me tell you, the marketing spend part is the reason why Bob Chappick is unemployed. All right. Before we go into the ratings, how did the box office do during Thanksgiving, Tim? The most interesting thing during the Thanksgiving weekend was actually not the movie that won the weekend, which was, of course, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which is, you know, now approaching 400 million. It's actually about 380 as we head into this weekend domestically. Um, But there's two things. One, we, as we were talking about, Netflix released Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel, into theaters just for a week. And in less than 700 theaters, it pulled in about $13 million in its run. That's why people were clamoring for it to stay in theaters or for Netflix to do this more often. This is like the first time they've ever reported box office as well, because they have released the films in theaters before, but that was just for, they had to for Oscar qualifying runs, but we never really found out box office, right? Well, I, I need to stress technically they did not report it. The theaters did, which apparently wasn't crazy about. (laughs) This is part of NATO's attempt to put pressure on Netflix. And this is what I'm talking about with the balance of power nonsense, where NATO is playing a very political game here. And Netflix is like, we have no need to play politics here. We have all the power. They're basically Cersei on Game of Thrones saying power is power. That's what this is. But we should also mention Glass Onion, the 13 million. That's in five days, Mm -hmm. not three days. Not three days, right. Yeah, it's not quite as good as it maybe sounds initially. Don't get me wrong. It's an excellent performance. And if they had released this wide, people who would know these things have said it would have made about 45 million in five days. I'm surprised by that total, but also I know how good Knives Out was and it was a brilliant movie. So we always say that the opening weekend of the sequel directly ties back to the quality of the original. So, you know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised here. Yeah, Knives Out made 165 million domestically. So for the sequel to potentially do that much in a weekend had it had a traditional release would be outstanding. So yeah, there's there's a lot of hype for this. Though ironically, you can't watch it on Netflix. It's on Prime. But people are going to be very excited when it finally does hit Netflix proper on the 23rd of this month. But there's one other thing we need to talk about and because we have something pretty rare. We have a Disney movie that bombed. And that is Strange World, their traditional animated Thanksgiving release. Didn't even pull in 20 million in five days. This is a case of history repeating itself. You look back on the start of the 2000s, Disney tried a couple of sci-fi stories and you look at Treasure Planet and we're talking about, you know, it just, just needs to stay out of sci-fi animation. I don't know how to say it for whatever reason. <laughs> it's the one thing that strength. doesn't work. That's, a, that's, exactly. their, that's their weakness, yeah. And the thing is, I wrote a review of this and I said it. This is legitimately one of the best family stories you will ever see. In a way, it is better than The Incredibles in the way that the family ties into the plot. It really does. So it could be like, you know, Iron Giant, which for a while people were showing on Thanksgiving because it has such a gentle message of hope and optimism. Same deal here. But this never should have come out in theaters. Do you agree, Tim? The point people were making is they're blaming the marketing. And I don't recall seeing a single thing about this. Now, I'm not, I don't watch a lot of uh, television. I don't see a lot of advertising in general, but like I am generally aware of the big Disney movies coming out. And I don't recall a single thing about this. I had to remind myself of the title. I wanted to call it Strange Planet for a minute because I realized, no, it's it's Strange World. So I guess that's I what they should have done. Anybody who says that, frankly, doesn't know what they're talking about. I try to be 
you know, not binary about these things, mm-hmm. but that is an idiotic argument that should not be said out loud because the reality is Disney spent more on its marketing on this film than it is actually going to make in domestic box office for the production, which means every dime they spent added to the loss on the product. And <laughs> so it is such a mistake to say, hey, what they really needed was a better marketing campaign. No, that would have just meant more lost revenue on what was already a bad project. What needed to happen is this needed to go straight to Disney Plus, but because Bob Chapek was on the defensive about this conversation throughout the pandemic, this was the one where they took another shot. And, you know, honestly, we have mentioned many times Encanto did not do as well in theaters as it should have, which is maddening. Mm-hmm. It took until it was on Disney Plus for it to have that Titanic-like run where it dominated the Nielsen streaming services for so long. Same deal here. They tried something because that was the way exhibitors pressured them to go. And it is just an absolute debacle in every way. And I think that's the other argument, too, is more and more, I think people are now conditioned just to wait for Disney Plus for the, the, the Disney movies. I mean, even with the Pixar stuff now, you know, they, they've done OK, but they haven't done fantastically. It's almost like we were like, now we don't need to go to the theaters anymore. We can just wait two months at the most and it'll show up on streaming. I think that's going to depend on the quality of the product. Turning Red is a good example that I think was probably a fringe call. Mm-hmm. Kim, looking back on it, do you think Turning Red should have gotten a theatrical release or do you think that it would have done something similar to what Strange World has? I think it would have done better because it has a really good target of girls and women to watch it. But I still do wonder just because we were going through that period where we weren't quite ready to go back to theaters yet. Most of us, it still might have just struggled a little bit. But yeah, and the decision to do that came after one Encanto was absolutely blowing up on Disney Plus, and we were in the middle of a January surge in COVID numbers. And they're like, oh God, we have a movie coming out in theaters in two months. Maybe we shouldn't do that. And it turns out they still probably could have because it had largely subsided by then. But I think they were also looking at how great Encanto had done on streaming. I think that's that's absolutely fair. And, and you're right. What I'll add is I feel like things are going to be much different with Elemental, which looks special. I don't think they ever really knew what they had with Strange World. And I think that kind of goes back to the script for the film, which is hard to encapsulate. Kim liked it quite a bit more than I did. But I I think that we both agree. Kim, you know what? I don't want to speak for you. But was this a hard film to market, in your opinion? I don't know how you market it because it's very different. I mean, unless you're specifically drawn to artistic animation and most people don't necessarily think, oh, my gosh, that's really unique and different looking. They're not going to go that way. And then we also have the anti-woke crowd screaming about it to some degree. So it was a little tough, I think. Yeah, what we saw this weekend, I think, is arguments for and against exclusively releasing movies on streaming. It's getting harder and harder to argue that movies like Glass Onion shouldn't go to theaters 
first. Evidently, it could have done better. Could it have done spectacularly well? That's hard to say. It's all speculation at this point. But on the other hand, did Disney lose money by putting Strange World in theaters rather than just putting it on Disney Plus exclusively? This is a debate that's going to be happening and and ongoing for years, and we're only really going to know the answer in retrospect. But we have here two different arguments for, for releasing movies in theater versus releasing movies exclusively on streaming. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Let's go ahead and move on into the ratings. Okay. So yeah, because of the holiday where they weren't released and uh, you guys recorded the emergency Disney news episode, uh, we have two weeks of ratings to work through here, but we'll go through the first week pretty quickly. So we have Monday, October 24th to Sunday, October 30th. Uh, It's once again led by The Watcher, 1.2 billion minutes for its seven episodes. Uh, Right behind it in second though is Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, 1.1 billion minutes for eight episodes. This is a horror anthology series arrived on Tuesday, 25th. So it had the benefit of almost the entire ratings week and it was, of course, the week before Halloween. So people who wanted something horror themed uh, definitely checked it out. Uh, From Scratch jumps up to third with a very solid one billion minutes. And right behind it is Love is Blind, adding three new episodes on the 26th, also earning a billion minutes with, oh boy, more episodes to come the following week. Uh, it shows we've seen before, filling out the rest of the list. Great British Baking Show in fifth, 508 million minutes. Unsolved Mysteries is six, 471 million minutes. Handmaid's Tale, two episodes to go before its season five finale, 404 million minutes. And or up to eight episodes and 385 million minutes. Those two shows make up your non-Netflix content on the originals chart this week. Uh, Big Math returns to the chart as its sixth season of 10 episodes arrived on the 28th. It places ninth with 384 million minutes. And thankfully, finally, for the final time, Dahmer in 10th. Movies for this rating period is led by The Good Nurse, 1 billion minutes after arriving on Netflix on October 26th. Oh, good. True crime documentary shows weren't enough. Now they're just going ahead with movies about them now. That one's at least like a kind of an awards bait film. I it, was about to yeah. say, considering it's Jessica Chastain and Eddie yeah. Redmayne, was Netflix hoping for awards for this? Yep. Okay. Yeah, they were. I'm sure. It has not top-notch reviews, but good plus, I'd say. Let's not forget that I think it was just the following week Netflix then released a true crime docu- documentary on the same story. Oh, so, geez. okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, that's the Dahmer thing. It's like then they they after the show exploded, there was this documentary showed up about it. Like, uh, we didn't have enough of those. Okay. Uh, the School for Good and Evil is in second in 596 million minutes. So that's a little bit of a decline after its premiere. Uh, it's the week before Halloween. So here's Hocus Pocus 2 in second, 429 million minutes. And I'll go ahead and mention the original is back in seventh, 222 million minutes. All Quiet on the Western Front takes fourth with 339 million minutes. For some reason, I had to of course, check that we talked about it. And yes, we did. But we pointed out it's a German film, which is probably why it didn't do much better. I suspect most people watched it in a dubbed English version. But as we learned with Squid Game, it's not entirely clear whether these ratings capture every language that people are watching or only people watching the English version. Uh, just in time for Halloween, we again have The Nightmare Before Christmas in fifth, 266 million minutes. Uh, but here in sixth from HBO Max is Barbarian, 247 million minutes. Uh, this was a theatrical release back in September, where it won a really sad box office weekend when it opened to $10 million. It got praise when it came out. What was the Rotten Tomatoes on that? It was 92% fresh. Yeah, 90, 92% fresh. So I guess it didn't, I mean, it made about $45 million domestically, which is, which is good. I think it cost next to nothing to make, but yeah, that's surprisingly good reviews. And I suspect it didn't cost much to make either. Budget about, of about $5 million. So yes, a big, a, a big win. And it's not a huge number, but uh, I am happy anytime I see HBO Max's content on the list here. Eighth goes to Battle of the 47 Ronin with 218 million minutes. Uh, David and Kim, how many of those minutes were yours? <laughs> 
we haven't watched it yet. <laughs> oh, you guys were so excited about this. We are, and we still will watch. It. I know you guys. You guys are Don't crazy. Worry. Busy. It's on your list. Yeah. Yes, I know. Uh, movies wraps up with the Curse of Rich Hollow at two hundred three million minutes, and something called the Chalk Line Intent, the Mexican psychological thriller that I guess piqued enough interest to come in with two hundred million. Uh, Acquired is of course ten shows we've seen before, but once again led by the Almighty Coco Melon, eight hundred four million minutes. Only thing worth mentioning is after its season is finished, House of the Dragon is here in third with seven hundred five million minutes. Let's see where it is next week. Because now we are on to Monday, October 31st to Sunday, November 6th. And your top series is, wait for it, Manifest. Yes, that's right. Manifest. Yes. Canceled by NBC after three seasons. The show then pulled in ridiculous ratings on Netflix, prompting them to resurrect it for a fourth season. Ten episodes arriving on November 4th. Ten more sometime in 2023. But with 52 total episodes on Netflix, 1.3 billion minutes. This isn't the end. I at least thought this was the end. I made this to no, the end. No, come on. You know the model now. Season four, part two, coming 2023. I hate you, Tim Brighty. <laughs> and I am not even going to make a point about the fact that how is this original? I, it is. Uh, I mean, well, the new episodes are, unless you wanted them to split it up. I think that's what they're supposed to do. <laughs> like I mean, okay, majority so of this, this is probably season four anyway, but yeah. This is this is a new and then House of the Dragon sits in acquired and it's really aggravating. But we know because House of the Dragon is also on HBO. These this is not on NBC. Well, it's been canceled by NBC. So season one to three were new. These are exclusive to Netflix, season four and beyond, but they claim this season four will be the last, but I guess we'll see. Manifest ruins everything. It does. <laughs> Love is Blind again adds episodes and jumps up the second, 1.2 billion minutes. <sighs> two more finale episodes arrive on the ninth, so we'll see it for another week or two before it returns for its next season, because I'm sure this is cheap to make and draws in a ton of viewers. Also new in third is Inside Man, 892 million minutes for just four episodes of this British series from Stephen Moffat starring David Tennant, Stanley Tucci. So that's... That's impressive. Yeah, I saw a lot of talk around it, a lot of buzz. You know, not necessarily was it well-reviewed, but a lot of us really love David Tennant, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it had the, the names. I think the idea that it was David Tennant in a, something from Stephen Moffat made people check mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. Big deal. Oh, yeah. Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities is in fourth, 798 million minutes. A lot of the Halloween content is still here, even though technically it only had two days because I don't think anyone was watching this stuff after October 31st. But there was a surprising amount of viewing, though, in that, in that limited time frame when it was you know relevant to the holiday. Uh, from scratch in fifth, 796 million minutes. The only other new show on the list this week, Killer Sally, 666 million minutes for the three episode true crime documentary about terrible people doing terrible things. Uh, the Watcher drops to seventh, 636 million minutes. Big Mouth takes a jump with the first full week of availability of its season, 533 million minutes for the adult animated series. Uh, Great British Baking Show, 510 million minutes. And Handmaid's Tale, 441 million minutes in 10th. Movies this week led by Enola Holmes 2, 855 million minutes, premiered on the 4th. I saw a lot of online marketing for this one. I feel that it's trending very young in terms of the audience. And so it's probably got a lot more people watching it on mobile devices than on television. So that 855 million minutes does get it first place on the television viewing Nielsen charts. But I suspect a lot more people watch it than even that. I agree with Raul. I also, what day did this debut compared to the ratings dates? Uh, the, the fourth, so on a Friday. Just, just a three-day figure. So it, I it was, think we'll see it go up next. Yeah, the there's a decent yep. chance it jumps next week. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people talking about having watched this. 
we can't pull up YouTube without speculation on where the franchise is going. It is wildly popular. So this actually, I suspect, is one of the shows where Nielsen's blind spots are coming in. We can't talk about Wednesday yet. We don't have the numbers yet, but we know the Wednesday is arguably Netflix's best performer ever. And Ola Holmes isn't in that level, but I think that this is like a second season of Stranger Things type of performance that we're witnessing, which is very, very rare for this style of story on Netflix. And I'm looking forward to the debate as to whether Henry Cavill, Robert Downey Jr., or Benedict Cumberbatch is the best Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention also the first and all Holmes just predates us doing a ratings segment because it was September 2020 when it released. It was actually originally a theatrical release. And then because of the pandemic, it was one of the films picked up. So uh, Netflix may have stumbled onto a successful franchise here. Uh, the Good Nurse is second, 542 million minutes, so drop from its premiere, which, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but I do expect an old Holmes to do a solid number next week. Uh, for some reason, Hotel Transylvania 2 takes third, 460 million minutes. Okay, I know Halloween is in this ratings period, but what the heck? Why just, just for that one day? I mean, come on. It's a charming franchise. Yeah, We've talked about it. I know, but it's it's just weird. All Quiet on the Western Front, 391 million minutes in fourth. Hocus Pocus 2, 282 million minutes in fifth. This is probably the weirdest one is Oblivion from 2013. Yes, the Tom Cruise movie, 257 million minutes, uh, but it's because we have now flipped the calendar and the ratings. This return to Netflix from wherever it was on November 1st. And is a solid sci-fi film with a couple of excellent performances. Right. Uh, School for Good and Evil, um, which is become a disappointment, 256 million minutes in seventh. Uh, the Takeover is something new, 252 million minutes. Uh, I don't recall what this was, actually. Oh, yeah, no, I remember this one. This is the Dutch hacker uh, movie that uh, had oh. all the hacker cliches in it. Oh, yes. right, yes. all right. Every hacker cliche, yes, I remember. Okay, <laughs> yes, that's right. I Okay, yes, I, I remember now. I was like, wait, did we did we mention this? And okay. Of course it yes, did well. Terrible hacker, generic hacker comments. I've, I'm in the mainframe. Okay, aspiring Netflix filmmakers, you've just learned something very important. Horrible cliches are your friend. Hacks welcome. Okay. <laughs> All right. And we wrap up movies with Disney Plus content and Kanto in 9th, 233 million minutes. And this is actually a pleasant surprise, but it makes sense. Coco in 10th, 222 million minutes. Yeah, I expect that as we near the holiday season, the Disney animated movies are going to start climbing up that chart. And Coco's good for Day of the Dead. So. Yeah, but because what comes after Halloween? That's right. Right, that's why. I, yeah, that's I, for a second, I was like, wait a second, why is that? The, I'm like, oh, right, it's about Day of the Dead, which is November 1st. And Acquired is 10 shows we've seen before, once again led by Coco Melon with 862 million minutes. But this list is most notable for what's not here, and that is House of the Dragon already falling off the chart just two weeks after completing its season. But Game of Thrones is here. I mean, it does have more episodes, so it makes sense, but I am pretty surprised how swiftly it dropped off the list. That was two weeks of ratings in pretty decent clip. It wasn't overly exciting. I was shocked slash not shocked to see Manifest, and it's a couple weeks away, but oh God, that Wednesday number is going to be absolutely ridiculous. It is going to be massive. Thanks for the ratings, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Netflix has picked up the political thriller Zero Day from Eric Newman, Noah Oppenheim, and Jonathan Glickman and set to star Robert De Niro. 
I do believe this is Robert De Niro's first episodic or television type content anywhere. So I can see why Netflix would be eager to get their hands on it. Heck yeah. And McGee will be directing the body switch comedy Family Leave starring Ed Helms and Jennifer Garner based on the children's book Bedtime for Mommy by Amy Cross Rosenthal. Remember McGee? Mm. But I find this movie entirely unbelievable. Never mind the body <laughs> switch part. Ed Helms married to Jennifer Gardner? Mm-mm. No. At HBO and HBO Max, White Lotus has been renewed for a third season. It's a monster, so we could expect probably several seasons with only Jennifer Coolidge carrying the flag from season to season. Yep, she'll be like the common thread. But the Latino horror comedy Los Spookies won't be seeing a third season on HBO Max. It was a cute premise. I think we were discussing it just mm-hmm. a few weeks ago when uh, season two premiered. But uh, the uh, it looks like the creator was actually moving on to another project. It's really disappointing, though, because it is an incredibly well-regarded show. In fact, there are some uh, best of 22 TV lists showing up. And I have seen Los Spookies on at least three of them. So, I mean, it is of highest quality and it has representation. So it's a shame that this is another one that HBO Max has ruined because all they care about is hard numbers, not quality of content. Apple has picked up the rights to the book Michael Lewis is working on about the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Boy, it's a good thing he was hanging around the guy when the whole company just collapsed. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Is it possible that Michael Lewis is like the Ocean's Eleven of writers (laughs) where he is just ripping off all these people and they have no idea? I don't know, guys, but Michael Lewis is standing right over my shoulder right now. Should I be worried? (laughs) (laughs) Michael Lewis wrote other nonfiction bestsellers that became huge hits like Moneyball and The Big Short. It was revealed a couple of weeks ago that Lewis had been embedded, that's the term they use, at FDX for months and was turning his experiences into a book. This sparked a bidding war before a single word was even written. And of course, Apple's got the deep pockets. Yeah, it's absolutely hilarious. By the way, maybe we should short Apple if Michael Lewis starts writing a book about them. (laughs) Lewis was actually planning to do a story of a good guy versus a bad guy, where the person from FTX was the hero of the common people who was doing everything to make crypto more uh, respectable. And this happened, you just got to laugh about it. It is very similar to the, the one little subplot in the big short where the people made all this money on shorting stocks, and then they realized if the company actually actually collapses, we might not get a dime, even though we're right about everything. Kind of the same thing here where Michael Lewis shows up and this thing just disintegrates in front of him. I would be very, very worried of any and all encounters of Michael Lewis. And you just wonder, where has Tabitha Soren been the last 20 years? Has anyone seen her? That is an old school MTV shout out that requires you to know that they're married. Yeah, I do. Oh, wow. Okay. I definitely remember Tabitha Soren. I did not realize they were married. Also at Apple, Cynthia Erivo is set to start in a new series, a thriller titled Raising Wild, which will be executive produced by Erivo and Renee Zellweger. MGM is the studio producing the series. But Amazon owns MGM. (laughs) (sighs) Also, Apple's loving the British spy thriller Slow Horses, starring Gary Oldman. They've just renewed the series for a third and fourth season. 
Turns out that Gary Oldman guy is pretty good. He's not bad. And Surface, about a woman with amnesia trying to piece together her past, has been renewed for a second season at Apple. It's starting to feel like Apple doesn't really care how well a show does. They're just going to renew everything. They kind of take their time, though. Yeah. Slow Horses is different. It took a while for them to announce the renewal of Mythic Quest, and then they went ahead and renewed it for a third and fourth season. Yes. And Slow Horses was very similar in that pattern. But uh, I suspect that if something did poorly, Apple would announce it sooner rather than later that that would not be ongoing and they don't pull the plug on many shows they do not no over at amazon freebie just days after it was announced that the beloved long-running australian soap opera neighbors had been canceled amazon's free streaming service announced they had picked it up and would be showing reruns and airing a new season in 2023 there's going to be a lot of people in Australia looking up to see what the hell Amazon Freebie is. <laughs> At Prime Video, Scarlett Johansson is executive producing and set to star in a limited series based on John Katzenbach's 1992 novel, Just Cause. Johansson previously appeared in the 1995 movie adaptation that starred Sean Connery and Lawrence Fishburne. That's a cool little anecdote right there. Yeah, I don't think that it's uh, in any way a sequel or anything. She's, I don't think, playing the same She's character that she played all those years ago. Years. Yeah, she was she was 10 years old at the time. She yep. played Sean Connery's daughter. Uh, I suspect this is simply a, a brand new start from scratch adaptation. But yeah, it was, I guess she must have liked it enough when she was 10 that she decided it was <laughs> that she was going to remake it. Over at Disney Plus, Marvel has found their Wonder Man. Broadway actor Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who's received praise for his role in Top Dog, Underdog, has been cast to play the actor-turned-villain-turned-superhero for the Disney Plus series. Yeah, this is a fascinating turn of events in that if you have watched the HBO reboot of Watchmen, I don't want to say anything that gives it away, but he has one of the seminal roles in the series, which you don't realize until toward the end of it. But his performance throughout is far and away the best part of a series that, frankly, I find pretty ordinary. I know it's glowingly appraised. It didn't do much for me, and I prefer the movie. But he is a talent. He was in the trial of Chicago 7, mm-hmm. had one of the best casts I've ever seen. And yet Cam and I are looking at each other throughout the film going, who is this guy? He yep. is amazing. This guy has star potential. And it's interesting because in the comics, Wonder Man is an absolute doof. Uh, you know, he is on that Peter Quill, Ant-Man level of useless. But you cast an actor of this gravitas in the role. I'm curious where they're going with it. Yeah, it's, it's very good casting. Exciting. Paramount Plus has announced that Taylor Sheridan's Tulsa King, starring Sylvester Stallone as a mobster just released from prison, has been renewed for a second season. Taylor Sheridan definitely has a magic touch, but his shows, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, his shows like Yellowstone and Mayor of Kingstown haven't really appealed to me. I watched the first episode of Tulsa King because Sylvester Stallone was in it. And because the trailer had a hint of that fish out of water humor that are remember from Lillehammer. After one episode, I was hooked. So this is really great news. Paramount Plus is also bragging that their premiere of Tulsa King beat the premiere of House of the Dragon as the (laughs) highest rated series debut of the year. So you have to parse that a lot. (laughs) Yes, you do. We'll have to see about that as Paramount Plus currently doesn't show up in the Nielsen ratings that we get. The premiere of Tulsa King uh, was on November 13th. 
Uh, so maybe Paramount Plus will have changed their minds by the time those ratings come around. It is absolutely fascinating to me that Danny Boyd from Veronica Mars has turned into one of the premier storytellers of this generation. And I had to laugh because we've been looking at this with some curiosity. We loved Hell or High Water, didn't we, Kim? It was just perfect. Yeah, it's a great movie. Highly recommended storytelling. If you haven't watched it, it should be like one of your highest priorities legitimately. So we've known he was great for a while. His ascension with the Paramount stories has just been just fascinating to watch unfold. And we kind of sometimes we'll do a Google of like what his net worth is because he has carried them so much that I'm confident he's made a lot of money. And the net worth is always like, you know, $10 million because these sites don't really know. But I knew that his fortune would change earlier this year when it came out. He bought a quarter million acres of land in Texas. So that's the kind of money Taylor Sheridan has now because he is an amazing storyteller and everything he touched has turned to gold for the last really six years. Finally, Paramount Plus is also set to premiere Sugar, based on the young adult drama of the same name produced by MTV for the African market. Great. Now I get an Archie's earworm. <laughs> Uh, apparently, this was huge in Africa. It uh, it was a series that ran for, I think, about a decade in the early 2000s. But really, I never noticed it. I was not familiar with the show. The American version is going to be based in Baltimore and has to do with young, I'm guessing, attractive people struggling with everyday life. As always, we finish the show with what's been keeping us busy over the past week. And I reread The Little Prince by Antoine de saint I love him. He's a favorite author of mine. And every now and again, I like to reread his stories. And The Little Prince is just a beautiful, tragic, sad, lovely story. Well worth reading when you kind of feel like being nostalgic. It's a good one. How about you, Raul? I love reboot on Hulu. When they announced the show, they did it a disservice promoting it as an old show being rebooted with Paul Reiser as an old time Hollywood writer joining a writer's room full of woke people. And he had to deal with, you know, all this new wokeness. That's like a B plot in like the second episode of the series. It, it's not what this is about. Look, Rachel Bloom, and I'll be honest, I never saw her in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, so I really had no idea what, to, uh, what I was in for with her. But she stars as Hannah a writer who pitches a reboot of a 2000 sitcom, Step Right Up, but she wants to deconstruct it and make it more highbrow and intelligent. Hulu picks up her pitch. Yes, Hulu is the company in the series. But it turns out the original creator, Gordon, played by Paul Reiser, still owns the rights. So Hulu hires him on to run the show. Hannah's motives are personal, as Gordon is her father, but he left her family to start a new family and turned that experience into the show step right up and she wants to write that experience by turning his show upside down but now that gordon's in charge the two are constantly at odds with the cast stuck in the middle the original cast returns keegan michael key is reed who left the show originally to become a real actor in the movies but his career never took off judy greer is brie who had a relationship with reed but took the breakup hard and left to marry a duke in europe johnny knoxville is clay a comedian who's been canceled 
one too many times and needs to keep it on the straight and narrow. And Callum Worthy, who I remember as the goofy kid from the Disney Channel show, Austin and Allie. David, do you remember Austin and Allie? Yes. As a matter of fact, it recently celebrated an anniversary for its debut. Yeah. Callum Worthy is basically playing the same character he played in that show. He's Zach, the cute kid who never grew up and made a number of kids-oriented directed video movies with diminishing returns. Every episode, he seems to mention another directed video movie with a more absurd title. And they're joined by a new cast member, Timberly, a social media influencer who was a breakout star in the reality show Buddy Mountain. The whole series is one big joke about streaming shows, mostly at Hulu's expense. It's probably one of the best things I've seen in streaming in a long time. It is created by Steve Levitan, who created Modern Family. So I think he's got a great pedigree. I, I know, David, you and Kim love Modern Family. Oh, yes, we do. I mean, he's even got a scene where one of the cast members pees on Chuck Lorre's star on the Walk of Fame. I assume it's all in good nature, but the fact that uh, he's Dissing Chuck Lorre in that scene is fantastic. Reboot is on Hulu. All episodes are available now, and I highly recommend it. All right. Tim, how about you? I spent some time this week with the game called Yakuza Like a Dragon. It's the most recent release in the long-running Yakuza RPG series. I've played one or two of them previously, and it it is like cutscenes. the game. There is so much story and, and backstory and explanation, I guess, especially in the early goings, where I think at one point, literally half an hour just went by without me doing anything other than just like watching something. And I was just like, what is going on? But that, I think that's par for the course with these with these games. But once you get into actually playing it, it's pretty good. Uh, they went with a more turn-based RPG combat system for this one rather than like previously real-time combat. So you're not like button mashing, you're you're just you know selecting, you know, what attack, what ability, and on, on which guy. And it's much more my my style of, of gameplay. It is getting pretty interesting and in, in, intriguing. It plays really well on the on the Steam Deck. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you skip the cutscenes? I remember. Yes, I you remember can. an early, an early yeah. Final Fantasy game that had just constant cutscenes, and people got very upset about the fact you couldn't skip them. Yeah, you you can skip them. I mean, but I, it is I I do like to know exactly what is going on in the story, or at least an explanation. So I I did watch the first. I just didn't expect them to be so long. Like I at one point, I like I said, I swear, 20, 30 minutes went by with just like tutorial slash cutscene slash new new things. So it, it does take a while to, for things to really open up and and unlock. But I think I'm almost at that point, and there are potentially like hundreds of hours in this game if you want to really experience everything. So yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So maybe I'll have um, more of an opinion on it on it next week, but I, I'm definitely enjoying it so far. I remember Microsoft uh, including Yakuza in their sizzle reel when originally announcing the Series X. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's one of those A-list games. Oh yeah. R- really pretty, right? So yes. Uh, yeah, it looks, looks absolutely amazing. I mean, this one did come out is the most recent one. It came out, I think 2019 and then the PC version version 2020 i think it was a playstation exclusive first but yeah it's it's huge in 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 japan and then you know has decent popularity uh, over here all right okay and david yeah so kim and i have watched uh fantasy football on paramount plus which is the ridiculous madden movie and kim it was better than it had any right to be wasn't it it was pretty charming just completely disposable but if you want a nice little family film with a father-daughter relationship it's really really charming for what it is we also got caught up on mythic quest and um you know i don't actually know kim do you like it better or worse than the previous two seasons i like it as much as the previous two seasons i you know i just 
enjoy the show. It, it hits all the right notes for me. I love Ian. I love Poppy. They've done some very funny things with characters who had been more tertiary in the past, which I dig. So yeah, I'm here for it. If I may, um, I feel that it's taken them a long time to actually get to the plot of the new season. We're in, what, episode four now? And the two real true narratives of the season have only just started to play out, one of which was introduced early in the season, which is the Mythic Quest movie. And the other one is one that is a twist about what Poppy is working on. So I'm not going to reveal it, but it, it took them a long time just to get there. Kim, yeah, the Mythic Quest movie will be directed by James Gunn. <laughs> I don't know, but I was amused that Raul just started that with, if I may, which is a CWism. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's it just feels like we've got our friends again is the nicest thing I can say about it. It's an insane cast of just mega talented people. And we're just so comfortable watching it each week. And then finally, we are down to the season finale of The Peripheral. And I have to say, this has been one of the true pleasant surprises of 2022. This would make my top five television shows for the year before all everything's said and done. It might make my top three. It is a masterpiece of science fiction storytelling. And I I cannot wait to finish the podcast because the first thing we're going to do is we're going to watch the season finale. David, would you say that Amazon made a mistake on Thursday Night Football by having Al Michaels promote 2 chains instead of this? Never. I cannot get enough of Al Michaels reading awkward promos he doesn't <laughs> understand. But yes, it would have been nice if they'd given some sort of push to the peripheral because it is probably the best show on Amazon right now. And I say that as a fan of The Boys. Yeah, Al Michaels saying two chains is always going to be the best thing. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingintothevoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us and giving us a review in your favorite podcast player. Be sure to watch for us again next week.